You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. Apple, Spotify, Google, etc. Thank you for finding us wherever you listen to your podcast. And actually, we're coming to a website near you in the very near future. More info on that in the coming weeks, so stay tuned for the web home of Commute the Podcast. But we are Commute the Podcast, the podcast where we aim to entertain and inform you over the course of your average commute. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are so happy to have you along for the ride. If you have not yet done it, please rate, subscribe, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. It helps us out a ton. On this episode of Commute. Have you ever looked at those around you and felt like you were an imposter? Studies show you're not alone. Rumors of tainted or poisoned candy being handed out on Halloween night is as much a part of the holiday tradition as costumes and house parties. But... Is poisoned candy a real threat we should worry about, or urban legend? The Keurig machine. It's quick, it's convenient, it's efficient. But do the benefits outweigh the costs? All of that on this episode of Commute. Let's hit it. So Dave, in your professional life or in your personal life, have you ever looked around at people in your circles and sort of felt like maybe you were an imposter at times? Yeah, I think everybody probably has, especially when you're trying out something new or you're starting something new. My career outside of the podcast, my day job, has has kind of put me in a position currently and really every job I've ever had where I'm kind of the youngest guy there. And so there's a little bit of imposter syndrome that just kind of comes with that from an age standpoint, feeling like maybe you're not worthy to be a part of it. Yeah, many millennials like you and I are very aware of the term imposter syndrome, which is the act of doubting your hard-won success and feeling like a fraud in certain spaces, such as work or finances or level of success or relationship. Research actually shows that 82% of people have reported that they felt like an imposter at some point, according to the Journal of General Internal Medicine. And the number is higher among minority groups and women. The thing about imposter syndrome is that it can easily mask over the truth. You know, on paper, many of our lives tell a story about us of gradual success in our development and our work lives and our finances, but in our heads, the reality can be misconstrued to say something completely different. Uh, You know, those that suffer from imposter syndrome tend to attribute their success in life more to luck than their own work. And I think it's important to ask the question, why does the imposter syndrome happen? So let's start there. It can pop up in our lives in a number of different ways. For some of us, we may have felt an immense pressure to succeed as a child, and that affected the way we view our successes as an adult. For example, we may not see our successes as enough to satisfy this impossible standard that we've created for ourselves. And our society can also prop up the imposter syndrome through existing stereotypes of minorities or of women or through just outright societal discrimination, making it more difficult for these groups to attain or you know, accurately measure their personal successes. 
And psychologists have also suggested, and I'm, I'm sure that you were thinking this the whole time, that social media has contributed to this, as you would expect, because we constantly have the ability to, at any time, measure our success against anyone's, including people who may have more wealth, more advantages, and more fame than we do. It can be easy to draw the conclusion that despite these differences, your level of success should match those that you see on your Instagram feed, despite the fact that Instagram is filtered. So if we feel like we're caught in the imposter syndrome, how can we fight it? Well, one way we can combat it is we can reach out to people close to us and have honest conversations about where they are in life, emotionally, financially, and socially. You know, chances are many of the people in your life that you consider important have dealt with very similar negative or self-deprecating thoughts, and finding a safe place to confirm this can do wonders for your mental health, and it can help strip the power away uh, from these negative thoughts. Simply having a label for this thought pattern, too, can be so powerful. You know, another way that you can tangibly fight back against the imposter syndrome is to carefully curate your social media feeds, which is something I know you and I have talked about a lot. Uh, Ask yourself, are these accounts that I'm following having a positive or a negative effect on my mental health? Or am I using this too much as a tool to compare my very real-life successes and failures to someone's filtered successes and failures? And then finally, just focus on changing your thinking by recognizing your own thought patterns, recognizing what you do well, and maybe asking for professional help if you feel like the imposter syndrome has affected your life in a way that is kind of out of your control. Well, and all those strategies sound great, right? I mean, those are things that we feel like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Of course I can do that. Actually, it's really hard. Um, I I think most of us, if you're being really honest, at some point in our life, we've thought, we don't deserve this. We're not good enough for this. We'll be found out in this situation. And it's interesting to think, and from a therapeutic standpoint, therapists would tell you that this is the case. Most people are thinking that. So when you're thinking that, you can really be sure that the people you're interacting with are probably thinking the same thing. So Jay, funny that we'd be talking about people feeling like imposters, which leads us right into Halloween, where you pretend to be somebody else. Jay, I know you hate Halloween, so let's just go ahead and and share with our listeners maybe a little bit of your feelings of hatred about All Hallows' Eve. It's kind of... um the thing that is my most uh, controversial opinion, I think, uh, of all the opinions that I have is that I just do not care for Halloween. It kind of comes down to a few things. Uh, I don't like horror movies. I really don't like dressing up in costumes. Like It's just like a really inconvenient thing for me to think about putting on a costume. It doesn't seem that fun to me. And um, all these things together sort of are the main point of Halloween. So just not really my thing. Knowing all of that makes it even funnier that I have a picture of you wearing a costume of an over-easy egg. (laughs) Well, I mean, if we're talking about why I don't like Halloween, I mean, here's exhibit one. (laughs) Well, Jay, Halloween, honestly, if you think about it, it's nuts. Okay, so take a step back and look at it from 30,000 feet. We dress our kids up like Batman. We send them to houses of people we don't know, and then we tell them to beg for candy under threat of a potential trick being done to the poor neighbor if they don't comply. Then, as adults, we dress up, you as an egg, some people as a sexy nurse, and go out on the town with our friends and do things we'd never normally do. Well, if you're anything like me, at some point when you were young, your parents got very concerned with the safety of the candy that you were receiving on Halloween. 
everything from razor blades being added to baby Ruth's or inserted into apples to poison being injected by syringes into mallow cups, it was all on the table. The myth basically goes like this. No kid is safe on October 31st because psychotic murderers may hand out tainted tricks to trick-or-treating children. But is there truth to this fear, or is it all urban legend? Sociologists and criminal justice experts Joel Best and Gerald T. Horiachi decided to find out and produced an academic paper titled The Razor Blade and the Apple, The Social Construction of Urban Legends. The study, in what they called Halloween sadism, which is crimes specifically committed using Halloween tricks or customs, concluded that the threat is greatly exaggerated. Though both parents and kids are taught to be on the alert for tampered with sweets, most of the cases researchers analyzed were either overstated or could not be linked to Halloween. The research also suggests that fears about Halloween shenanigans rise during fearful times. Makes sense. A good example of this happened in the early 1980s after a string of Tylenol poisonings in which cyanide-laced ingredients were placed into Tylenol containers on store shelves and then sold. The high-profile incident actually led, Jay, to the introduction of child-proof containers for medicine, kind of interesting there, and the creation of federal laws that punished those who tamper with any kind of medicine. After the Tylenol murders, which are still unsolved, may I add, warnings about altered Halloween candy only increased. So while most of these Halloween fears are in fact overblown and exaggerated, crimes have actually occurred. Now, the most famous crime took place in 1974 when a Texas man named Ronald O'Brien gave cyanide-laced pixie sticks, and you're going to hate this, you're a pixie stick lover, to five children, one of which was his son. The four other children never ate the poison, but sadly, O'Brien's son Timothy did eat it and actually died from the incident. After Timothy's death, investigators discovered that O'Brien had recently taken out new life insurance policies on his child. So, Jay, while this is an example of your worst fears come true, in fact, it's referred to today as the Candyman murder. It wasn't a random act of evil. Uh, It was more of a premeditated, somebody-knew-somebody kind of thing. Sadly, it happened to someone's own son. Still, this incident is considered the basis of all Halloween urban legends. O'Brien's own attorney would even be quoted years later as saying, yeah, my client basically uh, was convicted of killing Halloween. The first thing I'll say is I don't like pixie sticks, so I don't know where you got that idea. And uh, the second thing I'll say <laughs> is, you know, I was a child of the 90s, and my parents did the thing. I mean, they we got home from Halloween. They laid out all the candy. We had to go through it all. I remember specifically them throwing out pieces that looked weird. Did your parents do the same? Yeah, yeah. Reese and, Cup um, was a little misshapen. Forget about it. Right. And I know that we're sitting here sort of uh, on, you know, our mathematics high horse kind of saying like, hey, this doesn't happen. But you have a son. I have three sons. Um your son comes home from his first trick-or-treat. Are you going through the candy? Yeah, I think I will go through the candy, but probably just to see it. I, I don't think I'll I'll think that anybody had any kind of ill will. Yeah, but th- that is why these types of things still persist, though, is because uh, it's, the same, it's framing, right? It's the same reason that when uh, you sell a box of condoms, you put that they're 99% effective on the box. You don't put that they <laughs> fail 1% of the time, right? Because framing, framing every, right. everybody has the same thought. 
thought is like, yeah, I know that this doesn't happen, but what if it happened to me? And so let me just go ahead and take 30 seconds and check, check my kid's candy. Well, also, I, I, I don't know what kind of neighborhood you grew up in, but we had a guy in our neighborhood. He gave out dollar bills. Now, I don't know how many kids came to his house, but every kid got a dollar. So he's looking at probably, what, losing two, three hundred bucks? I didn't expect. I expected it to go somewhere like that. It didn't go like I was expecting. You're going to be like, we had a guy in our neighborhood who's so like, we had to check our candy because we were afraid he was going to kill us all. And then you're like, no, he gave us all money. <laughs> Dave, at any time in your life, have you ever owned a Keurig machine? No, have never owned one. Have used it before. Um, I will go on record as saying I am a bit of a coffee snob, though. My father owns a coffee shop. Yeah, if you're unfamiliar with what the Keurig does, it is a single-use coffee machine. So the idea is that you stick a small plastic cup into the machine, you press down a button, and then the machine will push out hot water through the pod, making you one single cup of coffee. And the Keurig machine operates on its essential component, the K-cup. So the K-cups were invented by a guy named John Sylvan, but he actually no longer owns the product today. He sold it to the Green Mountain Brewing Company in 1997 for $50,000. And in the year 2015, one in three American homes owned one of the machines. So he sold it for $50,000? He did. He got taken. There's also, uh, I I didn't get too much into this, but there's also something about like he bought a bunch of stock in the company afterwards too. So he's doing all right. Drop in the bucket. (laughs) Sylvan himself never really saw that coming. Uh, He kind of thought that this was the thing that would be in an office or be in a restaurant. He never really envisioned it that, that it would be in the homes of just like the average American person. And in the years since, he's actually expressed regret for inventing this product. He invented the pod technology in an attempt to kind of make the quick distribution of the coffee just a more simple process, right? Like we said, it could be used in just like a big setting, like maybe a wedding reception or an office space. The issue, though, is that Sylvan made this incredibly efficient product, but he describes it as a cigarette for coffee. It's a single-serve delivery mechanism for an addictive substance. Now, in 2012, the patent on the product expired, which flooded the market with imposters. And in 2013, some 9 billion pods were used. That is enough, Dave, to wrap around the entirety of planet Earth 10 times. And we got a lot of people out there drinking bad coffee. Yeah, and that number has only increased throughout the years as the convenience of the K-Cup has taken the world by storm. And unfortunately, these pods, which were predominantly made of plastic, end up in landfills, and they're not biodegradable degradable. Although the company has pledged to make their product recyclable by the year 2020 and has seemingly delivered on that goal, critics point out a few things. Number one is that in order to properly recycle the product, a customer actually has to pull the cup apart down to the different materials. Number two is that the product is made tons of waste over nearly a decade while they were trying to figure out how to make it recyclable. And number three, like the product is still made of plastic in order to keep the coffee inside fresh. And so throwing it in the recycle bin isn't exactly saving the planet since humans haven't really developed the solution to our mounting plastic problem. And Dave, you know, people buy these products Products because they're quick and they're efficient. Recycling in a lot of places in America is really difficult and it requires extra steps. So I mean this. Uh, this is a legitimate question. Why can't we put things like these K-cups and really trash in general on some kind of rocket and shoot it into space? 
I mean, I feel like people in the, you know, 1500s are probably having the same conversation. Like, why can't we just throw all this stuff in the ocean? You know, and, and at the time it probably seemed like a good idea, but I mean, now we have more information and we know that it's not. Well, space, I think it's fine. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to need to get somebody uh, on the show who knows we get an things about space. We don't really know anything if about space. If we could space. get an astronaut on the show. Yeah. If you're an astronaut, call us if you listen to the show. And so, you know, and critics too have just suggested that these things are never going to be able to be made fully biodegradable in their current form. If you want to keep coffee fresh, it's there's got to be some element of plastic to it. So uh, it's pretty tricky. You can't just change the packaging and still make fresh coffee. And these realizations have sparked pretty heavy backlash against the disposable cup model, including a hashtag, which is very popular, hashtag kill the K-cup. And uh, the market, though, is still very much alive for disposable single-use uh, coffee units, despite the problems that they cause. And we're targeting K-cups. We're talking about the targeting of K-cups here. But waste comes in many forms. Like, for example, if you make coffee in a pot at home instead, do you waste some of that pot by throwing it out at the end of the day? Because if so, you're contributing to water waste. And do you leave the pot on the burner even when you're not drinking it? If so, you're wasting electricity. So I guess what I'm trying to say here, I guess the bigger lesson is that, yeah, like we can get rid of the K-cups or we can make them more efficient or whatever, but we can all find very tangible ways to cut waste in our own lives. You know, K-cups is a symptom of a much wider problem that our species has, which is just the mounting dependence that we have on single use, convenient, but non-biodegradable items for our products. So what we do, there's so many galaxies is we figure out a way to get all this trash into a different galaxy. So make it some other alien race's problem. I'm picturing like the next great sci-fi movie is not about an alien invasion. It's about an alien civilization in another galaxy dumping their trash on us. And somehow there's like some sort of social message there. And that's it. Hashtag waste up in space. Thanks for listening to this edition of Commute. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Music for Commute is provided by Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. Let's send our garbage to space. We'll see you next week.